14 is our sermon text tonight. Luke 14, verses 1 through 14. God's word given to us for our good. Let's attend to its reading and hear uh, these words from the gospel of Luke. Luke chapter 14, verse 1. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him away. Then he asked them, If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? They had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this man your seat. Then, humiliated, you will have to take the least important place. But when you are invited, take the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of all your fellow guests. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, And he who humbles himself will be exalted. Then Jesus said to his host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back, and so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous." The grass withers, the flower fades, God's word endures forever. Amen. By this time in our journey through the Gospel of Luke, uh, we recognize this kind of story, and we recognize the structure of this kind of story. There are components and characters that we recognize and that we've seen. Uh, more than one other time in Luke. The key components are dinner parties and the Sabbath day. The key characters are Jesus, the Pharisees, onlookers, and someone who has great need. Sick person, someone who needs to be healed. So we've seen uh, these things before. And Luke continues to include similar stories like this to drive home some basic points that he's been trying to make in his gospel. One such point is that we begin to realize how deeply rooted all of these feelings towards the law and the Sabbath regulations of the religious leaders in Israel really were. Jesus keeps having similar encounters around the Sabbath and disputes about the Sabbath because uh, There are so many people in Israel who think this same way. These feelings about the Sabbath were everywhere. 
The Sabbath seemed to be, in many ways, uh, the epicenter of how Israelites thought of their relationship with God. For example, uh, you might go up to someone in that time and in that day and, and ask how it is that they view how they're relating to God or how their God looks upon them. And, and they might directly point to the ways in which they were following all of the expansions on the Sabbath law that had been given to them by the religious leaders. And so Luke brings this up again and again to show that these feelings, these thoughts are ubiquitous about the law and about how people are relating to God. Another point uh, that Luke is reiterating, of course, is the core teaching of Jesus and his salvation. And it's important to keep that in mind because uh, this, this particular account, Jesus' encounter at, uh, the, with the Pharisees on a Sabbath with a healing, if we do, do not keep all of the things that he's taught us about his salvation in mind... Uh, we might go down the wrong track. And so it's important that we consider all of these things together uh, carefully. But each account also brings out different nuances, little different things that Luke's trying to show us, different shades of how you look at the work of Christ. Two things I want us to consider tonight as we study this passage together. First is that Christ's humility heals our status anxiety. Christ's humility heals our status anxiety. And then secondly, Christ's servant heart makes the impossible possible. Christ's servant heart makes the impossible possible. Before we look at this healing and the teaching of Jesus, it's important to notice that in this passage, it seems like the Pharisees are setting a trap for him. They're trying to set him up. In verse 1, we see that they are carefully watching Jesus. And Luke seems to say that in order to communicate to us that they're waiting for him to do something so that they can challenge him. What are they waiting for him to do? They're waiting for him to do exactly what he does, healing on the Sabbath. But notice that since he is at the home of a Pharisee, we wouldn't expect to have this man with dropsy in the home of a Pharisee unless there was some ulterior motive. Just from the mindset of the Pharisees that we know from the Gospel of Luke, they probably would not have had this man in their home on a Sabbath. And uh, from what happens in this account, Jesus heals this man and then he sends him away. And that shows us that this man is probably not... A guest at this dinner. He probably was placed there as some kind of setup. The Pharisees are always trying to catch Jesus in something, but as happens here, usually what they're trying to do backfires. Jesus exposes the error in their thinking with how they relate to God. And so this is a trap, it's just a setup for Jesus, and we see how he responds. In verse 3, Jesus offers a challenge. We've seen this kind of challenge before in the same kinds of situations. On a Sabbath, at a, at a party or a banquet, and Jesus healing. Luke chapter 6, Jesus said to them, I ask you, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to destroy it? Luke 13, verse 15, the Lord answered him, You hypocrites, does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman 
the, the woman who was bent over, who had the, the, the curve in her back, a daughter of Abraham whom Satan bound for 18 years, should not she be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? In, in these other two instances, Jesus is showing that the Sabbath connects to the life-giving power of God. That's one of the main uh, meanings of the Sabbath. This day that God commands his people to set aside to remember him, And he is the God who gives life. He is the God who creates things anew and who can make them new from what has been broken. The Sabbath is a day of re-creation. New life coming forth from what has grown old. And it's a gift. It's a gift from God. It's one of the things that Jesus says. The Sabbath is a gift from God. God. Now, of course, this doesn't mean, as we relate it to our own lives, it doesn't mean that there is no discipline or intentionality that needs uh, to happen along with the Sabbath in order to receive the blessing of God. It does take intentionally ordering our affairs. It does take prioritizing our time, particularly in our age, setting our priorities straight. What is it that we're going to prioritize, the worship of God or something else? Even the Bible has these kinds of categories. Psalm 92, a song for the Sabbath, it says this, It is good to give thanks to the Lord, to sing praises to your name, O Most High, to declare your steadfast love in the morning and your faithfulness by night. See, even within this verse, we see that it takes intentionally attending to the public worship of God in order to sing praises, in order to declare love, all of those things in order to be with the saints, to be with God's people, it takes purpose and intentionality. So Jesus is not saying that the Sabbath is some kind of magical exchange where just because of the day, God's going to download life into you. He's going to download blessing into you. God is a God who works through his means. But what we do learn from Jesus through these various uh, accounts around the Sabbath is that the day is for resting in the redemptive purposes of God. The creation of life. The God who gives us life. It's not a day for cowering under the condemnation of the law. And this is, as we've seen, what the Pharisees had made the Sabbath. A day of man-made regulations. A day of expansions upon the law. A day of binding the consciences of the people, the people of Israel, farther than what God's word itself uh, had intended to do. A source of cowering and fear, heaping rule upon rule onto the people. And Jesus says this misses the point of the Sabbath. What you need to keep in mind, people are sometimes tempted to think this way, that as Jesus is interacting with people on the Sabbath, is that each time he's sort of weakening the command of the Sabbath as you go along. And that's not true at all. Jesus never came close to breaking any of the commandments. never broke one of the commandments. never broke the Sabbath commandment. He kept it perfectly. That's why he's a righteous savior. That's why he can be our sin substitute. That's why he can be our righteousness. But rather what he's doing is he's focusing us on what it's all about. The life-giving power of God. Resting in the redemptive purposes of God. Not cowering under the fear of the law's condemnation. But rather resting in God's promises. So he offers this question as a challenge to them in verse 5. If one of you has a son or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull him out? 
Now, Jesus is pointing out something that's already present in the mindset of the people of Israel and that's already present in the law to show an inconsistency. Most people understood that because of uh, the God they worshipped and because of his word that he had given to them and his law, that just in life in general, you were to have a general posture of goodness towards your fellow man. So in the pressing situation of someone caught in a well... Even on the Sabbath, people would respond the right way and and helping that person out. That would take quite a bit of effort, don't you think, to draw someone up out of a pit. So when Jesus points this out, no one answers his question. No one answers him. Uh, Verse 6, they had nothing to say. Why does no one answer Jesus? It's very simple. Because... He's turned the question around on them. And if they answer yes to Jesus' question, then they're agreeing with him. If they say yes, then they they, they answer in the affirmative. They they agree with Jesus' point. But if they say no, they're standing against common sense. And everyone knows uh, what the, the point that Jesus is making here is valid. God is the giver of life. If we are to draw close to him, if we are to learn to reflect his character, particularly on the day that he has given us to worship him and to think about his uh, redemption, then it would be foolish to allow all of these expansions on the law to prevent from helping those in need. The Sabbath is about showing us and reminding us that the helpless need to be redeemed, that the dead need to be given life. And that is the point that Jesus drives home again and again and again. Not just on his Sabbath healings, but in all of his healings. That the helpless and the hopeless need to be saved by someone else. Saved by someone outside of them. And that's what Jesus does here. He heals this man and he sends him away. He sends him away. It shows that he probably was not a distinguished guest at this uh, dinner party. And what Jesus does is he reveals that the Sabbath needs to exalt and to magnify the redemptive grace of God. So the Sabbath is centered around uh, the God who saves those who cannot save themselves. And so we see how foolish it is to enter into the mindset of the Pharisees at this time. We see how foolish it is to allow man-made expansions on the law to inhibit our ability to reflect God's character and his generous grace. And so that's why Jesus is pointing out this inconsistency time and time again. No one answers Jesus because they know he is right. Jesus is not doing a 180 degree turn on the law here. He's not weakening the commandments of God. He is showing us what it is all about. Israel knew that the law... thrust them forward towards God's redemption. There was just inconsistency in how they applied it, and they often uh, lost that point and became more and more legalistic and moralistic in their framework of thinking. And so Luke is driving this point home for us again and again and again so that we start to see the clarity in, through the eyes of, of seeing things through the, with the lens of Christ with the relationship of law and grace. Jesus is not breaking the law here, but on the other hand, he's showing that the law has an inability to redeem. 
And also, he's showing us the weakness of the human heart to take something like a commandment, to take something like a law, and to be drawn into thinking that that is what props up your righteousness before God. That is what uh, our, 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 the weakness of our heart is to think that this commandment is something we can use to bring before God and to say to God, look at what I've done. Now give me my reward that I have earned through obeying this law. See, we are like the Pharisees. The natural condition of our heart, we're like the Pharisees. We're drawn to that legalism, drawn to that moralism to say, here's my righteousness. Here's what I have done. The gospel tells us of something different. And the gospel is about humility. And we learn about humility in the rest of this passage. We turn to verses 7 through 11. We see this parable. In order to understand this parable, we need to understand the context of the uh, Greco-Roman Mediterranean, um, particularly the Mediterranean world at this time, particularly uh, Jesus' world. Because uh, this naming of the man with dropsy is done for a very important reason, but we have to understand what's going on. Uh, Dropsy is a condition that we now call edema. And connected to uh, other ailments as well. Usually it's just a picture of overall uh, unhealthiness in the body. And dropsy is a condition where there's massive fluid retention in the body tissue. People become bloated and uh, gain lots of weight and size from a severe retention of water. But dropsy was also used at that time and in that world as a metaphor for insatiable greed. The thirst and the lust after the things of the world. Whether it be riches or status. Because people who uh, had dropsy were afflicted with uh, severe thirst. And they would keep drinking and drinking and drinking. And the thirst would never go away. And all the while, they're retaining more fluids. They're getting more and more bloated. So ancient authors talk about how dropsy was a picture for a vice that was inherent in the soul. The lust after riches or status. And this vice needs to be overcome in the soul. Otherwise, uh, the desire for wealth or status will never be overcome. So that picture is important for what Jesus says with this parable. And... Again, another thing connected to this parable is the idea of status in public events at that time. Uh, There would be, at a dinner party like this, there would be places of honor all the way down. The highest place of honor all the way down, 20 seats down. uh, Everyone visibly represented in their status. The, The highest place of honor all the way on down. And this was central to the mindset of people back then. We live in different times. We don't have this kind of thing going on, right? That's not why we set up the chairs in the sanctuary. They're not places of honor going right on down the line, right? But we know that our minds still do this. Psychologists talk about status anxiety. And it's one of the most common types of anxiety that people experience. And it's noticeable at events like social gatherings, parties, where people with the most status or the most interesting life will have a crowd of people around them, right? The modern world, what's the, what's the word we use? Entourage, right? You go to places with your entourage. We give status to the people whom we deem most important as having the most significant job or most significant influence in the world. 
So at a party, what's the first real question that someone will ask you? You you exchange pleasantries. Hi, how are you doing? What's your name? If you're just meeting them for the first time. What's the next question? So what do you do? What do you do? And people get so stressed about that question and often ashamed of what they do. You know, the the temptation that you have, someone asks you that and you, you think of a certain way to color what you do to maybe make it more interesting. Because you know that when someone hears your answer, they're automatically going to, to uh, put you in a corner, you know, pinpoint you, uh, think exactly what they're going to think about you for the remainder of the, uh, for the evening. So if you don't have a good answer, you'll find yourself standing alone at uh, the punch and the crackers table. No one's interested in talking to you simply because of what it is that you do. So we know what this is all about. And we know these hierarchies of status. It's just manifest in different ways in this world for Jesus. But as we consider the parable that Jesus says in verses 7 through 11, it sounds a little bit odd based on what we know Jesus to uh, have been saying all throughout Luke. It sounds an awful lot like Jesus gives us a strategy for attaining the highest place of honor and status at a dinner party. Jesus says, go to the lowest place. Go to the place of dishonor and you will have nowhere to go but up. In fact, since it is likely that at every single party there will be someone who is worse off in life than you are, it's likely that the host will notice and will tell you to move up. And so you will receive honor. And that moment of receiving honor is really what you're going after. Just bank on every party will have some guy who does nothing but plays video games all day and buys lottery tickets trying to strike it rich. You know you can do better than that guy, and so you'll move on up. But the key here to understanding this parable is verse 11. Verse 11 is the key. And it's also key to notice that Luke calls this a parable. For what is it that the parables teach us? What's the the overarching category that uh, is always prevalent in parables? It's the kingdom of God. Jesus is teaching us something about the kingdom of God. And verse 11 shows us that Jesus is not ultimately talking about how to receive places of honor at a dinner party. It's not a a self-help strategy type thing for attaining earthly status. not what Jesus is doing at all. Rather... Jesus is teaching us, he's pointing us to a a constant theme that we find all throughout the word of God, all throughout scripture. And that that, that theme is that God will exalt those who consider themselves as having no merit before him in and of themselves. And that God brings low the prideful and the arrogant who think they can achieve their righteousness before God. God exalts the humble, those who do not think of themselves as righteous before him. And God will bring low the prideful and the arrogant. To put it in different terms, God exalts and honors people who know themselves to be sinners in need of forgiveness. And he promises to bring low those who think that on balance their life is generally a display of righteousness and that God would consider them that way. Now perhaps to our ears that, just, that, that sounds wrong, but if you go and you ask people why it is that they think God will accept them after they die, 
On the whole, the most common answer that you will receive is that, well, I'm generally a good person. I'm a pretty good person. I know that God uh, will give grace. God will give grace knowing that I did the best that I could do with the time that he gave to me. So I don't really concern myself with these larger questions of, of redemption and forgiveness because I generally just try to live like a good person. But this is a constant theme all throughout Scripture. Psalm 138 says this, For the Lord... For though the Lord is high, he regards the the lowly, but the haughty he knows from afar. Proverbs 15, the fear of the Lord is instruction in wisdom, and humility comes before honor. So Jesus says, everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. What Jesus has done, then, in this parable is that he has... He has painted a picture of what has just happened at the beginning of the passage. He's provided commentary on what happened in his healing with the man with dropsy. Here was a man who normally would not have been invited to a dinner party. He was there just to set up uh, the Pharisees so that they could accuse Jesus, to trap Jesus in healing him. He would have been seated where? Not on the the chair of honor. He would have been seated in the lowest place, the back of the room, where no one wanted to be. Yet what happens? Jesus heals him and he sets him free. Right? And we think about that dropsy as uh, this, this. No one would have wanted to be around this man at this time. But Jesus exalts him out of the place of his humility. And then what happens with the Pharisees? In this story, they believe generally that they're standing on their own merit before God, that they have a righteousness that God would regard through their observations of what? The law and the Sabbath laws. So much so that they believe themselves to be more righteous even than Jesus himself. I mean, that's what's going on in the Gospels. The Pharisees think they are more righteous than Jesus himself. But what happens? Jesus shames them. Jesus shames them by asking them a question that shows their inconsistency and their hypocrisy. Jesus shows them uh, that they are not seeing the inherent meaning of what the Sabbath points to. The redemptive purposes of God. The the life-giving power of God that he gives as a gift to his people to rest in him. And to look to him so that he might heal them out of his sheer grace. Israel, trapped in Egypt, shackled, God brings them out to freedom. This is what God does, and that's what the Sabbath is meant to memorialize, God redeeming us and setting us free. So Jesus teaches that the kingdom of God is founded upon this very simple principle, the humility that we need to have before God, considering ourselves as sinners who stand in need of forgiveness and being humble. Proverbs 29 One's pride will bring him low, but he who is lowly in spirit will obtain honor. This is the way that our God works. James 4, 6, he gives more grace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. So, ask yourselves, brothers and sisters, do you constantly remind yourself of the need to humble yourself before God? Do you become contrite before him? Do you seek salvation in something other than yourself? Do you understand what God has saved you from? Do you understand that without Christ, you are 
a wretched sinner? Or do you live like the Pharisees, inflicted with an unquenchable thirst for status? Do you struggle with status anxiety, as so many in our world do? In light of Christ, in light of salvation, in light of grace, why does Christ's humility, why why does the gospel heal us from our status anxiety? Because in light of salvation, in light of seeing ourselves as wretched sinners, in light of seeing ourselves, as Paul would say, as the foremost of sinners, the gospel transforms our hearts and our minds to the perspective of what it is that we should want in this world. That's the glory of God. We should want and desire the glory of God above all things. Why? Because he deserves all the glory. Because we deserve none of it. Because we know that we have run from him and that we have rebelled against him. So what we should want is the glory of God. Does salvation become stale to you? Does the the message of grace and, and forgiveness and righteousness given freely, does all that become old to you after time? If it does, you need to remind yourself of the glories of Christ. You need to return to the waters of grace. And you need to think about yourself. Think about your own life. Think about the last seven days. Think about this past week. Did you do anything that needs forgiveness? Don't think about it too long because you might get depressed, right? We all do things that need forgiveness. So in the quietness of your heart, remind yourself of of that. Remind yourself of uh, the, the insufficiency that you have in your own heart, in your own mind, to prop up your righteousness before God, because if we're all honest with ourselves, we know that we would never be comfortable displaying all of the things that go through our heart and mind in the course of a week. We would not be comfortable at all displaying that to our friends or our family, and all that that should do in our hearts and in our lives is cause us to look to the glory of Christ. Return to the waters of grace so that salvation would not become stale to us. So that we would understand what it is that grace does and how it makes us seek and desire and want the glory of God in all things. And then in light of all of that, we finally consider that our sins, all the ones that we commit, send Christ to the cross. The eternal, uncreated Son, He hung there to forgive us of our sins. He hung there and was tortured on behalf of all those who would believe so that we might be set free. So Peter says in 1 Peter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time He may exalt you. So friends, don't lose sight of who you are. Don't lose sight of who your God is. And most importantly, don't lose sight of who Christ is. The Lord who became a servant. The Lord who became a servant. And so Jesus closes this passage by turning to the host and what he says strikes us as very odd, talking about the invitations that are to be sent out to a dinner party. For one, the standard that Jesus sets is altogether too high. 
we think about it. Are we to take Jesus uh, literally here? Anyone who takes Jesus literally would probably go, go broke in almost no time. Right? Have this mentality of, of inviting uh, none of your friends, none of your family, no one you know, no one who could repay you. Go out and find all the people who can do nothing for you in return. Invite them to your dinner party. And that's what you should do. That's how you should be uh, a person in this world, in society. The standard is altogether um, too high. So what is Jesus telling us to do here? Is he st- saying, stop inviting your family over for meals? Stop hanging out with your friends? Or is he saying, perhaps even worse, that we earn our place in the resurrection by being uh, a good humanitarian, trying to seek to help? And that's what gets us our place at the resurrection. Or, or is Jesus setting a standard so high that It humbles us, and it makes us realize how enslaved we are to the status rat race in the world, to being filled with this status anxiety and worrying about how others think about us and how they perceive us and what's the position that they put us in as they evaluate us and the merits of what we do and what we've accomplished in our life and what we have going on at home or outside of the home. See, what Jesus says hits us in such a way that we begin to realize that our human hearts are so far from the standard of generosity and grace of our God. Jesus sets the bar high. So in that way, what is he doing? He's pointing us to his work in the gospel. That's what Jesus is doing at the end of this passage. He's pointing us to his work in the gospel. For this is exactly, if you think about it, Think about it. This is exactly what Jesus does for us. This is what Jesus does for us. For to Jesus, we are the poor. We are the crippled. We are the lame. We are the blind. Why? Because we can do absolutely nothing to contribute to the status of Jesus. The one who from eternity past had had enjoyed everlasting glory with his father. We can contribute nothing to that. And to make him more exalted, we cannot help him in that. And yet, what does Jesus do? He comes to dine with us. He comes to walk with us. He comes to suffer for us. He comes to give himself to us. This is the God that we worship. And so the psalmist says in Psalm 116, How can I repay the Lord for all his acts of kindness to me? Because we cannot repay God for his grace. We cannot give him something that compares to what he did for us in dying for us, even while we were yet sinners. So, that's the first thing, that Christ is humbling us under the mighty hand of God in the gospel. That's what he's doing at the end of this passage and talking about whom to invite when you are hosting. He's humbling us under the mighty hand of God and the unfathomable display of his love for sinners. And then secondly, isn't Jesus then reminding us and showing us that because of him, he can transform our perspective on this life and this world, that we can get out of the status rat race. And those who are in Christ by faith can look at this world, they can look at this life with fresh eyes and say, we can be healed of our status anxiety. We can be healed of our unquenchable thirst for the worldly things that we're so drawn to. 
Because our Lord, the one to whom we are but the crippled and the poor and the lame and the blind, our Lord gave himself for us and invited us to his banquet. And if my king did that for me, if the Lord of glory did that for me, if the uncreated Son of God did that for me, I will joyfully and freely give my all for him. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the love of Christ controls us. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, here it is, so that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Christ's humility heals us of our status anxiety. Christ's servant heart makes the impossible possible. Because of what Christ has done, then we actually can begin to live like what Christ says at the end of this passage. We can go and seek out those who can return nothing for us to prop up our status in this world. Why? Because we're not worried about that. So we can live like Christ, the one who gave up the eternal glory that he had with his Father to come and to save and to redeem us, to transform wretched sinners who are caught up all the time in the status rat race, whose hearts are so drawn to the the, the things that make us forget who it is that we're truly supposed to be serving. But we are called to live No longer for ourselves, but for the one who for our sake died and was raised. That is gospel living. Living for Christ because of what Christ has done first for you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for another day in your house to worship you to be reminded of what you have done, to be caught up in the glories of the gospel, to be fed with heavenly food. And so, Father, we ask that you would impress the truth of your word deeply upon us as we leave this place and as we set out on a new week. Give us boldness and courage to live for you always. We thank you that Christ's humility that his servant heart set an example for us, but more importantly, speak for us. That they have already given us all of the status that we need. Status with you, with our God. Cleansed, free, your child, forgiven, renewed, guaranteed of eternal life. So thank you for that. We pray and ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen.